Good morning. This is in the matter of Cain and Raymond versus William Huff II, revocable trust. Is it Todd Relu? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Thank you. And you are reserving two minutes for rebuttal. That's correct, okay. Your Honor. And you are not speaking at all. Would that be fair to say? Correct, Your Honor. Okay. Other than just that. Just little notes here and there. Okay, and you don't get to reserve any time, Ms. Ortman. Indeed. You may be heard. Thank you, Your Honors. We're here today on behalf of two property owners, Michael Kane and Linda Raymond, who are owners in the Shores neighborhood, who are seeking to enforce the terms of an express easement uh, against a neighboring property owner, Huff. This all involves property down uh, bordering Lake Monroe, down near Bloomington, but the outcome of this case has a broader impact that could be statewide. The, what we're on appeal for here is a trial court summary judgment that expands a 1990 grant of easement beyond its express terms and effectively. In what way do you think it expands it or, or is it part of your argument that? Yes, yes, absolutely, Your Honor, thank you. Uh, the way that it expands it is that there's a specific dominant estate that is the benefited parcel that's set forth in the easement. There's a legal description of that parcel. EHR. Right, and there's no disagreement that that's, that's what that uh, dominant estate is. But the uh, summary judgment grant also includes an additional 44-acre parcel commonly referred to as the Chumley parcel. They are owned by the same they are, parties now. They are currently owned by they the same parties. They were not when, the, when it was granted. Correct, yes. When the easement grant was entered, they were owned by different parties, yes. Before we get too far down the road, uh, are, are, is there a community of interest in terms of arguments between yourself and the uh, Sexton Troy party to the suit? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, Tammy Sexton Troy is another owner in the Shores neighborhood. I understand that. And they, and they made a claim, as I understand, in their, in their brief that the law of the case didn't apply to them because they weren't parties at the time of the first two rulings. You're not making that argument, or they're abandoning that argument? Uh, Your Honor. Not speaking, what are, they, you know, are you making that argument on their behalf? Uh, no, we're not making that argument on their behalf. We, we were obviously parties to it. that there's no privity? Uh, Such as, so that the law of the case would apply to them the same as you, whether they were a party at the time of the ruling or not. Right, so we're not prepared to argue on behalf of, of Ms. Joe Sexton today with regard to that. Um, so that, that summary judgment grant that I mentioned includes the Chumley parcel and also doesn't just provide access. It also confirms that that Chumley parcel can be, can be logged and developed uh, to put home sites on it uh, consistent with the terms of the easement. Well, and if it's consistent with the terms of the easement, then why is it an expansion? No, consistent with the terms of the easement in the sense of that it would be limited to six homes, that there's a, a condition in the, in the easement that would limit the development to six homes. The Chumley parcel is always outside of the easement. So I'm just saying that there are certain limitations within the easement as to the development itself that the, the trial court summary judgment said would still apply. So the issue here is really does, does Indiana hold uh, parties to an easement to the terms of that easement or can one of the parties unilaterally expand the dominant estate simply by acquiring neighboring parcels? Wasn't that the argument you made in Huff too? It, yes, Your Honor, we did make Was that. that case? Uh, yes, our clients did lose that. Okay. Petition for transfer to the Supreme Court? 
Yes, Your Honor. It was denied? That's correct, Your Honor. You want us to overrule the Supreme Court? Uh, no, Your Honor. We, we want you... Is that what we'd be doing if we, if we find Huff 2 was incorrectly uh, determined? Uh, no, Your Honor. I do not believe that you'd be overruling the, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can deny transfer for any number of reasons, including that that matter was on preliminary uh, injunction. Uh, the, the court could revisit, the Indiana Supreme Court could revisit that if, if transfer is granted in the future. Just like this court could use its discretion to revisit a prior ruling of this court um, with regard to, to that determination. You mentioned a preliminary injunction. Is that significant in this case? Uh, yes, we think it is, Your Honor. Um, so particularly with regard to, to the law of the case, we think the fact that the earlier uh, determinations were made on preliminary injunction is very important because there are different standards that apply uh, to a preliminary injunction case. There's a, a different standard of review uh, where the court is construing uh, the evidence in favor of the trial court's determination in Huff 2 that would have been the denial of the preliminary injunction. Um, and, and here we obviously, and it's a sort of deferential standard, here we have a de novo standard of review on the summary judgment and uh, a reverse where the, the uh, evidence that's available and, and the uh, pleadings are supposed to be determined in favor or, or seen in the light most favorable to the non-movement, which would be Kane and Raymond here. Can I go back to the questions I, I was asking sure, about um, Chumley? You say they've added 44 acres. Is yes. that the sole argument of why this ought not apply because more acreage? Uh, yes, Your Honor, more acreage and more development uh, of that acreage. So we're having a lot more use of the easement itself. The, as, as is shown in a picture that's included in our briefing, uh, the, the Huffs have clear-cut the Chumley parcel. So there is a bunch of timber that has gone out through the easement as well from the Chumley parcel, and, and they're, they're Was the amount of timber that could be cleared, um, I mean, you talked about six residences, and that was it, but was the amount of timber that could be cleared in the original easement limited? Uh, no, Your Honor. Uh, on Huff, in Huff 1, the first appeal, there was a determination that uh, the logging should be consistent with what would be prudent for the development of the six homes on the THR parcel. But the THR parcel is also being logged. So clearly there's a, there's a lot more forest on the Chumley parcel that is now being logged as well. Uh, the Chumley parcel is also a former quarry, so there's a lot of stone involved there that is being trucked back and forth. Uh, and so there are, there are considerable additional burdens that are placed on this easement from the development of the Chumley parcel. So it's not just What about are the burdens that are being placed? Additional traffic? Is there yes, anything additional beyond traffic. additional traffic? Correct. Additional traffic with regard to... to uh, dump trucks coming in and out, and also additional equipment that would be needed to develop uh, roadways into the Chumley parcel in preparation for its development. So there, there are additional things in that regard. So um, with regard to the easement itself, Huff to, took a step away from 50 years of established precedent in, in Indiana. Um, and this, this goes back Is all... Is dependent upon our determining that Huff 2 was wrongly decided? Correct, Your Honor. I'm saying that Huff 2 was a diversion from the 50 years of established precedent. And, and for you to prevail, we have to agree that Huff 2 was wrongly decided, and because of that, uh, uh, avoid the law of the case uh, doctrine, right? Yeah, correct, Your Honor. Yes. You said earlier that we have a right to revisit uh, an issue. We have a right to revisit an issue, but that's not the case with respect to the law of the case, right? Uh, 
Well, you do have a, it's a discretionary law of the case doctrine that doesn't have to be applied in every case. And the court has said that in extraordinary, the Indiana Supreme Court has said that in extraordinary circumstances. No, the extraordinary circumstances here. Okay, so your honor. The cases of Tim, you're talking about Tim's? Uh, well, there are a couple of cases. There's uh, Lewis uh, and Huffman, State v. Lewis and State v. Huffman, in which they've, they've looked at that. So they're extraordinary. Have they ever changed, have they ever changed direction other than uh, in a criminal case? Uh, your Honor, I'm not aware of them uh, changing direction in, in other cases, but I, I would say that, Your Honor, in those cases, the reason that it comes up in criminal cases is because there are fundamental rights involved. I understand that. Back to my question. Sure. Uh, what's the uh, uh, overriding significant uh, reason for us to uh, ignore the law of the case doctrine in this particular circumstance? Right. I, I think there are two bases for that. I'll, I'll address your question first about the extraordinary circumstances, but I think there's another fundamental issue that we can talk about as well with regard to the preliminary injunction. Um, so when faced with a conflict between finality and fairness, the, the, the Indiana Supreme Court has said, you know, that it prefers fairness and will revisit decisions and encourages other courts to do so. Um, and that in this case, what we have as, as working a manifest injustice is a deprivation of a constitutional right. Just like in Lewis, where there we were talking about uh, rights against sort of double jeopardy, what we have here, as, as, con as the Indiana Supreme Court was concerned about in the Despirito case, is a potential judicial taking of property rights from Raymond and Kane and the other owners of the Shores uh, neighborhood by this sort of judicial decision, imposing additional, additional burdens on the easement itself. And as confirmed, or as the Indiana Supreme Court found in Despirito, that affects rights under the U.S. Constitution's Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, and it also implicates Indiana Constitution Article One, Section 21, which precludes property being taken by law without just compensation. So there it was my case, right? I was reversed by the Supreme Court in Despirito. Right? Yes. I tried to drag them kicking and screaming into the 21st century and they refused to go. Does that not undercut your argument that somehow leaving this ruling in this particular case, um, to the extent you argue it's an aberration, creates this gigantic problem for the rest of the uh, property owners in the state of Indiana? Well, I don't think it cuts against it. I, I, think, I, think, it is, I think it would be appropriate for this court to- Spirito, the Supreme Court said, we're going to stick with the traditional uh, yes. strict approach to easements, right? Correct. And, and that's what you're saying Baker didn't do in Huff 2, right? That is correct. Okay. So to the extent that the Supreme Court's not going there, how is Baker's decision in Huff 2 this gigantic uh, danger that creates these extraordinary circumstances to deviate from the law of the case doctrine? Right. I think we can't be certain why the Supreme Court denied transfer of Huff 2. So I, I think it was not possible to read into that, that they wouldn't necessarily... You're, you're arguing going forward that it, it creates this, this gigantic danger to yes. the property owners, right? Yes. The Spirito would, would tend to suggest that's not the case, doesn't it? Well, this, in the sense that Despirito says that the Indiana Supreme Court can come in and fix the issue, because I, I think what we're seeing here with Huff, too, is a complete turn from Despirito. Despirito talked about returning to the common law uh, and, and enforcing easement rights as... Huff precedes Despirito. Huff, Huff too came out after Despirito, I believe. That was the other way around. I may be wrong. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but in any event, I, I, either way, it, Huff is Huff too is in conflict with Despirito. Despirito 
takes a common law approach which would enforce these minutes of written and tries to encourage the parties to negotiate a resolution in cases like this. What we have, what I believe happened in Huff 2, is that there was a concern that the Chumley parcel would be landlocked because it was cut off from access to a road, not by the sale of another parcel, but by the creation of Lake Monroe back in 1964. So you don't have an implied easement of necessity. And so I think what happened- Yeah, because it's, you can get to it by water. Well, no, not because you can get by, by water, but because there are very specific restrictions on an implied easement of necessity. You can't have an implied easement of necessity over the lands of a stranger. So that means that you can't get an implied easement of necessity over the rights of another property owner. What happens it's when you It's the same property owner now. Well, no, it, it's not because the owners of the shores are not the same property owners, the owner of the Chumley parcel. And what happens in an implied easement of necessity is they have to be the same owner at the time that that access to the road is cut off, right? Essentially, you're implying uh, an access easement over the land that was previously owned by that prior owner that now owns land that's, that's cut off. And so we don't have that in this case. And so what I think happened in Huff 2 is that the court uh, tried, to, tried to step outside to say, well, no, we don't need to worry about that. In fact, this is all just one parcel together. That is, we can just lump Chumley in with uh, the THR parcel and everybody will be fine. But where does that leave Chumley? If you say they can't be an easement by necessity and it's only uh, able to get to it by land, is that just too bad? Well, potentially, Your Honor. There is also, there have, have been, I'll, I'll deal with one, I have two answers to that. The first is that Huff has now testified to the existence of a fourth easement that doesn't go through the Shores property that comes through another area that potentially would give access to the Teixeira parcel, I don't know if that would also include the Chumley parcel. But if Huff 2 is, is, uh, is set aside, it is possible that the Chumley parcel could be landlocked and that that, is, that would be an appropriate outcome under our law. And the answer is not that, that the owners of the Chumley parcel are out of luck for the rest of their lives. The answer is to sit down at the negotiating table and figure something out with one of the neighboring property owners so you can get access to the Chumley parcel. That's, that's what the Indiana Supreme The law doesn't, in your opinion, afford them any option. It, it doesn't afford them an automatic right. It, it, it gives them the ability to negotiate a resolution to that issue. But, but this parcel was, to the extent that Chumley is landlocked, it's been landlocked for nearly 60 years. And it was landlocked when the Huffs bought it. So the idea that the Huffs could come in and buy a parcel that they knew or should have known was landlocked and then enforce rights over neighboring property owners who had nothing to do with that, yes, I believe that's contrary to the law and, and shouldn't be. Sometimes that happens. Right, sometimes that happens. I mean, look before you leap, I would say, <laughs> right? Um, before you go on, I want to apologize. I, I was wrong, you were correct. Uh, uh, Huff 2 was decided after dispute. Okay, so um, in, any, in any event, um, I do think, uh, let me return to the law of the case issue. There was another argument I want to make on that that I think is important. Um, there is a basis to say that when you have uh, a decision on preliminary injunction, that that should not create a law of the case for, for later decisions that are decided on the merits of the case. Federal courts have a very similar law of the case doctrine that, uh, that allow, basically they, they hold the rights just like this court does to revisit prior decisions. But they have a doctrine that's discretionary like this court that says they rarely do so in order to promote finality. 
However, across the country, those federal courts have declined to apply law of the case doctrines to decisions on preliminary injunction. Courts in the Fourth Circuit has found that decisions of preliminary injunction do not constitute law of the case in further proceedings and do not limit or preclude parties from litigating on the merits. The Ninth Circuit similarly has found that preliminary injunctions are just that, preliminary. And the Sixth Circuit has found that findings made in the course of deciding whether or not uh, or whether to issue a preliminary injunction generally do not establish law of the case because of the lesser burden of proof that that, that decision merits. Federal courts have basically determined that they're loath to apply the doctrine where prior holdings in a case were based on an undeveloped factual record as well. This court has said that when in, in considering temporary injunctions that a question before the court on an interlocutory application like a review of a temporary injunction is not is not on the final merits of the case. And when the case, final case, that cause comes to be heard, the final merits may be very different. And those, those are issues that we have present here. Huff II, of course, was about a preliminary injunction. And I mentioned the fact that the standards are different, also the, the, the way that the evidence is viewed. In are, are those federal cases you're citing, are those cases where the Court of Appeals said that the, uh, d the determination of the trial court was not uh, binding, or were they cases where they said the uh, decision of the appellate court was not uh, binding in terms of law of the case? Right. They're, they're both, Your Honor. They're district courts revisiting district court opinions, and they're Court of Appeals revisiting Court of Appeals opinions. So it's not, it's not an issue where the Court of Appeals is saying the trial court didn't have to follow them, but the Court of Appeals is saying it doesn't have to uh, follow its own district own circuit. Right, exactly, right. It doesn't have to... Uh, it's really similar to the situation structurally that we have here. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So in those cases, um, they don't apply... Do the circuits fit into that category? Yes, all three of those circuits do, yes. Um, and, and so because we're dealing with a very different standard here and, and a, a very different treatment of, of uh, how the evidence is interpreted, the court should not be bound. It should use its discretion not to apply uh, the law of the case doctrine here. Any of those circuit cases have a situation where uh, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, denied cert? I, I do not know that off the top of my head, Your Honor. Um, and, and so, I, Your Honors, um, what we have here is we have uh, on the merits of the of, of Huff to. We have a case that has diverged from 50 years of, of established precedent. The court dealt with this issue back in 1973 in, in the Selvia case, decided completely opposite. The idea that you can't unilaterally uh, expand a, a dominant estate under an easement. And, and again, as we've, we've mentioned, we've at least brushed on, it's contrary to, to all of the concerns. It raises all of the concerns that the Indiana Supreme Court had in town of Ellisville versus Despirito. And for that reason, let me ask just one quick question. Yeah, please. Um, on the expansion of, of the easement by Chumley, would it have been sufficient if they did nothing on the Chumley property except add 44 acres, or 144, or 1,044? Is it, it, could the size alone be sufficient to be a burden on the easement, in uh, yes, your opinion? Yes, Your Honor. I would say that under the Selvia case, even access of any, even setting a foot on the, uh, their property is, is too much under Selvia. In this so case, the logging is really right, in this peripheral. Case, well, it, it is in a sense. It's peripheral in that I would say the same thing would apply even if they were just getting access. But I do think it matters, right? To the extent that there are other cases around the country that look at burdens on the easement, 
there are there are significant burdens here that have to didn't uh, consider. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ortman. You may be heard. Thank you, Judge. This third appeal reiterates arguments that were described by this court as Kane's fundamental misunderstanding of property law in Indiana. The twice denied transfer by the Supreme Court. There are no new facts, no new evidence to alter the law of the case. Huff's access to the Huff real estate was squarely decided on the prior appellate decisions Huff 1 and Huff 2, holding that once the Huffs used the easements to cross the Servian property of the shores, as the grant of easements gives them the right to do for the purposes described therein, they have all the property rights needed to access any portion of the Huff real estate for those same purposes. This court's prior determination... Well, that's a separate question, though. That's, that's they can use the ingress to the original... Uh, parcel that's granted pursuant to the easement, and then they can access their adjoining property. Nobody's arguing that they can't. They can't do that. And I think the argument is they can't cut down the trees on the adjoining parcel and use the easement to drag that stuff out. Okay. Nobody's nobody's trying to prohibit your client from moving from the original parcel to the Chumley parcel, right? Uh, indeed, they are internally. Yes, sir. That is, in fact, the argument that we have today, as I understand it and have been litigating it since 2018. Well, isn't there argument that, that the easement can't be used for anything to do with Chumley, whether it's the size or whether it's the logging? Logging, was, I could be certainly incorrect, but wasn't the logging to be limited to what was necessary for the six-house development, which would not include any logging on, on Chumley property? Isn't the issue whether or not that's an expansion of what the easement actually was determined to have, have included? I do agree that the argument is that Huffs have purportedly expanded the easement. And why does that not matter? They have not. Because the purpose and the intent of the easement in the original draft was provide access to the landlocked parcel. The landlocked parcel became so in 1965 when the waters from Monroe Lake were flooded. The Army Corps of Engineers began that development and property acquisition in about 1960. And by 1965, the flooding of the area consumed and put underwater the road providing the only public access way to what is now the Huff real estate in its entirety. And didn't Huff know that when they purchased Chumley? Uh, I don't know. That has never been asked, Your Honor. I apologize that whether Huff knew something back two months after he bought the Terre Haute Realty property or not, I do not have the answer to. So you're saying the language of the e easement as it exists includes development on Chumley? There's no development. What we're here today is the only issue was access on the summary judgment issue. There's been no construction. There's been no development. There has been some removal of stone from the quarry site being on the Chumley parcel originally to create fire roads pursuant to the forestry management plan, which was deemed fine in Huff 2 and Huff 1 if it's extended to create the same defined terms for the Huff real estate. But there's been... Is that exclusively on property owned by the Huffs? Is, I apologize, Your Honor. Fire roads. Yes, the fire roads are exclusively located on the Huff real estate. They haven't hauled any stone out through the... I am aware basement. of no stone that has left the property. There are some logs that have left the property, but no stone. The quarry site, which was the Chumley parcel, had existed as a 
family business for the Chumleys for many decades. As it traversed the assignments through various entities and parties of the Chumley family, Huffs did purchase it at the end of that term. It's the only access through the Terre Haute real estate property formally, and that access is only across the Shores subdivision. So help me understand something. If, if we're really looking at defining access and, and, and what the easement allowed, am I correct that your position, um, uh, unlike Mr. Relu's, is that there has been no quarrying over the easement? I mean, no, no stone, and there has been some logging, but not, I mean, have the, have there's, has there been logging over that easement? Only to the extent that the forestry plan, management plan from DNR, suggested or explained to my client that if it's a disease tree, if it's a volunteer tree, if it's an invasive species that's growing through a gravel quarry, it is not a sustainable landscape use. And so after, I don't mean to cut you no, off. No, no, go ahead. After the tornadoes went through, which is documented in the record from the deposition that occurred and was part of the record for Huff 1, the damage to the site required a significant amount of logging. But that logging cycle is 10 to 15 required, years. It required those trees to be cut down. It didn't require them to be hauled across the easement out. Uh, the alternative, Your Honor, would be to let them decay and rot away. That's the only alternative, and I believe that. They could burn with a burn permit, I believe that's correct, but I don't Or ship them out by boat. Yeah. Also an option, I presume, but none that I'm aware of. So if we're defining access, is it your position that the addition, the last question that I asked was, the addition of additional property is not any burden on the existing easement? Yes, it is, Your Honor. It isn't or is not? It's not an okay. additional burden on the easement because nowhere to date or in their plans have Huffs ever expressed an intent to overburden the easement to create anything more than the six residential structures that are expressly permitted by the easement. And the access would only, again, access only, would only permit the Huffs to traverse the very same shady side drive and crossing of the common areas to which Mr. Kane holds a one-ninth undivided interest. There is no additional burden. There is nothing in the access issue, limited in scope, greater than what was intended by the parties who originally negotiated the easement prior to the vesting of title in either of the parties here today. What is required is that the law of the case doctrine is based on the sound policy that once an issue is litigated and decided, that should be the end of the matter. This strict application applied by this courts and all other Indiana courts is preclusive to the law of the case doctrine, a legal question only, that does not permit the collateral attack on this court's ruling during the pendency of a lawsuit. It's final and it's fair, and it is the exercise of judicial economy. This court need if not at all. If we agree with you on the law of the case issue, then we don't get to whether or not the, the easement uh, has been violated. Right. Um, Judge, I believe you've already gotten to it. It doesn't need to be reheard again. But if we do get to that issue, you're reading this easement that says uh, they're granted an easement to use uh, the uh, property described therein to uh, uh, construct, develop, and use uh, 
for six single-family residential structures, and, and that would include subsequently acquired property and and logs taken off of the subsequently acquired property out through the easement? The ultimate purpose of... possibly have been anticipated by the parties uh, at the time, right? Mr. Robinson presented to the City of Bloomington, the zone, the Board of Zoning Appeals, a plat for a proposed subdivision, which is now Shadyside Drive and the nine lots. Within those requirements for every zoning is notice to the adjoining parcel holders, whether that is a two deep, three deep, or a distance of 600 feet, as it is in Marion County. Those responsibilities for notice are not a part of the record. Whether Mr. Robinson identified and noticed only the Terre Haute Realty fee holders, or whether he also identified and noticed the Chumley parcel, I don't know. What's that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with whether there was notice or he, Mr. Robinson took the extended reach to intentionally preclude and landlock the properties. Well, your client didn't own the property at the time the easement was created. No, sir, he did not. Neither did Mr. King. So they were King. granted an easement for a specific purpose on a specific piece of property. To build six homes, and right. that's what they have done. Right. So how can you read that to be expanded to allow them to use an additional however many acres the Chumley property is to, to uh, uh, haul uh, logs, stones, whatever, out of that uh, other piece of property? Well, respectfully, Your Honor, the benefit of creating the fire roads and clearing up what already is damaged and diseased fire is a benefit. Fire roads doesn't involve hauling anything out through their easement, right? Okay, correct. That's got nothing to do with it. I'm talking about hauling, cutting logs on the Chumley property and hauling that out through this, this easement. Where in the terms of this easement is that included? For the construction of the six home sites that are pro, uh, the purpose of the easement, it involves logging to some extent to create a safe environment. On the initial property. According to Hub 2, Your Honor, that holding is extended for what is necessary for the use and development of the Huff real estate in its entirety. So your, your argument on that issue is that Huff 2 has to be correct if we don't buy the law of the case argument, right? Both. I think they are consistent. Yes, Huff 2 is correct, and yes, the law of the case argument does apply here. What do you make of the different standards, the different burdens of proof between a preliminary injunction and a summary judgment motion? This court has always held that when it can address the merits, it will do so. And in fact, Huff too did so. When it addressed the element under the preliminary injunction standard for the likeliness of success at trial, it addressed the merits and interpreted the value, not the value, the language of the easement. And the easement scope burden and intent was clearly to provide access across the shores so that six home sites could be developed and constructed. Nothing that has occurred has done anything more than create a place to determine whether those, where or whether those home sites can be constructed. Not one shovel has in the ground to proceed with that activity, so the only issue we have today is access to the parcel. Not whether it's been overburdened for any reason, but whether there is access to one part of the Huff real estate from another part of their Huff real estate. Isn't it true that the trial court before Huff 2 only decided the issue of the, the THR property and not the Chumley parcel? That is true. Um, when so doesn't that render the, the language in Huff 2 about Chumley dicta and not binding because it wasn't necessary for determination? 
I believe not, Your Honor, and that is specifically what Huff 2 addressed. The decision in Huff 1 addresses what the easement parameters were as to the original Terre Haute real estate, because that's all of the description that was provided by the complaint and the only issues before the court. In Huff 2, the court addressed both the Terre Haute real estate property as well as the Chumley parcel as the entirety of the Huff real estate, just as it was defined in Huff 1, but specifically addressed because the complaint had been for a second time amended. After the trial court's decision? In Huff 1. So the Huff 2 decision addresses the trial court decision as to the entirety of the real estate based upon the second amended complaint. The only exception to application of the law of the case has been addressed to extraordinary circumstances where the initial decision was clearly erroneous and would work a manifest injustice. These criminal citations, criminal case citations, define what is a manifest injustice, specifically the improper jury instruction resulting in a conviction and a death penalty sentence the violation of a double jeopardy rule for retrial eight years later, and an officer's testimony at the sorry, suppression hearing that differed from his trial testimony, creating additional evidence for retrial. These extraordinary circumstances do not apply in this matter. The law of the case are unchanged from Huff 1 and Huff 2, decided in 2019 and 2020. The designated evidence in support of summary judgment gave the Canes every opportunity to designate additional evidence to identify additional facts, but there simply are none. There is no time today to recreate an extraordinary circumstance on no change in facts. It's your position that uh, Sexton Troy was in privity with uh, the original uh, party so that they don't have uh, an exemption from the law of the case application. That is correct, Your Honor. She holds not only another one-ninth undivided interest in the common areas, nothing more. Neither the appellant's persistence nor this court's patience permit the law of the case to be disregarded or to open prior holdings to collateral attack by the appellants. Properly, this court applied the same reasoning and holding in Huff 1 and Huff 2 squarely deciding the access issue as the law of the case. And properly, the trial court applied the same reasoning and holding of Huff 1 and Huff 2, being the law of the case, to grant summary judgment in favor of the Huffs on the access issue, as well as all other issues that are presented by Kane on cross motions. The trial court and this court are specifically bound by the determinations reached in Huff 1 and Huff 2, specifically, the Huff real estate is landlocked. The easements will need to be used to facilitate prudent logging. Huffs do not need an easement to cross his own land to reach other portions of the real estate. Once the Huffs use the easement to cross the servient property of the shores, as the grant of easements give them right to do for the purposes stated therein, they have all the property rights needed to access any portion of the Huff real estate for those same purposes. The prudent logging activities found not to be in violation of the use of the easement in Huff 1 
Have the HUFs des designated evidence to make those points, or are you simply reiterating the findings of HUF 1 and HUF 2? Both, Your Honor. The record is filled with, it's not, it is a landlocked property. The testimony of Mr. Huff was taken at deposition as well as by affidavit. Both are contained within the record. The arguments on summary judgment included both of those items as well as other evidence designated to the court. Um, the logging activities do not violate the easement in Huff 1. They were also found, therefore, not to violate the easement conditions and restrictions in Huff 2 as applicable to the Chumley parcel. This third appeal, I do reiterate, affects the access issue only. There is nothing of an overburden argument to be made here. There's not one house, there's not six houses, there's not seven houses. There is nothing to be considered an overburden because nothing has happened in the six years that we have been litigating this process. Mr. and Mrs. Huff have stood by trying not to let the property catch on fire or go to waste, but nothing more has occurred. The appellant's attempt to exclude the hub's access across their own property has been determined. Despite this clear holding, Kane repeats the arguments that hubs are not allowed to give themselves an easement to reach the Chumley parcel, but the court has held this misses the point. They do not need to give themselves an easement because they have unity of title across the entire acreage. Huffs have already been found to... Doesn't the merger doctrine require prior unity of title, not current unity of title? The doctrine of merger has been applied to the mortgage issue, but it has not been applied to an easement that I am aware of. When we look at the cases that were identified by Kane particularly Desperito. The holding in that case, ident and the court is certainly more familiar than I, but the Supreme Court declined to adopt the restatement 4.08 and opted to instead reaffirm Indiana's common law concerning the relocation of easements. Once an easement location is fixed, neither the servient or dominant estate holder can relocate or modify the easement without the other's consent. Huffs aren't asking to relocate Shadyside Drive. Huffs aren't asking to relocate anything. This case does not apply. The neighboring dominant estate holder filed a petition for judicial review. The Servian estate owner's request to relocate a sewer line to make better development out of the real estate, the Servian real estate. This court opted for the modern rule. The Indiana Supreme Court said, not gonna happen. But we're not asking for that result. We're not asking for those facts to be applied to a different scenario because the facts are different. Your argument that, that uh, they haven't been harmed really isn't any kind of a defense because at this point, we're on a declaratory judgment request, which is kind of the whole purpose of a declaratory judgment action, right? Uh, it is set out, the, set out the respective rights of the parties before uh, uh, harm might occur. Declaring the rights to of access right. is the issue before right. the court and on summary judgment. Does it require an actual harm to have occurred? Uh, I believe it does, Your Honor. In this preliminary injunction standard, no, the declaratory is there a harm? judgment action. That's what we're here on now. The motion for summary judgment did ask the court to declare that Huffs have a right of access. You are correct. 
Similarly, Blind Hunting Club is the most recent application by the court. It is well established, and we agree that easements are limited to the purpose for which they were granted. That purpose is construction and development of the real estate for six homes and ancillary structures. It is not applicable here because the Huffs have not sought to turn their future home site, an agricultural parcel that is currently vacant, into a business. And even in Blind Hunt Club, it identified that the business was not precluded, but the Hunt Club was precluded. My time's up. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Ballou, you have two minutes. I will not harm you for my additional question. Oh, well, thank you. I, I will, though, right, right, I want to ask, okay. clarify one thing. Is it your position that, that the Huffs have the right of access to the original parcel through the easement, but once they get there, they can't move internally between the original parcel and the Chumley property? Your Honor, that is correct. I, I would say there's another layer to that, but let me address that question first. It's not, the focus on the THR parcel is a misfocus in this issue. It's not what they can do once they get on the THR parcel. So we're not talking about easements over the THR parcel. They clearly can't give themselves an easement over property they already own. It's whether or not they can use the shores to get to the Chumley parcel, and whether or not that is an overburdening of that easement. And that's what Selvia held, that you can't cross the shores to get to other property. But we're even beyond that here. The summary judgment granted issue, that. The Huffs you know, are bending over backwards to say it's only about access. It's only about this issue about whether or not we could walk on this property. Clearly, they admit that they've logged the property and, and carried logs out through the easement. So we have that. There's also deposition testimony from Huff suggesting that there were loads of stone that were taken out through, through the easements. But the, the summary judgment grant that we're here on today, and I'll just read a brief portion of that for you. The court finds there's no just reason for delay and directs, directs entry of judgment against Kane, Raymond, and the identified third party defendants on the issue of the grant of easement provides a right of access to the Huff's entire real estate for the purposes consistent with the grant of easement. Construction, development, and use by the Huffs and their grantees and assigns of six single family residential structures, which includes prudent logging and removal of trees. So I mean, we're on a summary judgment here that says more than just access. Okay. Can I interrupt you for a second? Please. You said when you started in response to Judge Crone's comment that they need to use the Shores property to get to Chumley. They don't need to use the Shores property if they're on Huff's property to get to Chumley. What they need to have with the Shores property is whether or not they want to get to the, to the road. So I'm not sure I understand your comment about saying in order to get to Chumley, they have to use the Shores property. Uh, yes, Your Honor. If, if, the, if the Chumley parcel is landlocked, there has to be access through the Shores to get to it. And that's the focus. Um, through, through Huff's property. Through the Shores and then through THR parcel. But the THR parcel isn't the focus because in Selvia, the focus is on the burden for the Serbian estate, just like the cases around the country. So thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Take nothing from our questions. We do it to encourage a conversation. We will have an opinion in due course. Thank you.